Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. I believe we have a scripture reader. So if Mark wants to make his way up, and if you have a Bible, open it up to the very happy book of Ecclesiastes. Good morning. We're going to read from Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 through 26. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled, in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity." Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who can have enjoyment, more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting, that, may he, that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind." Thanks, Mark. He had quite the section of scripture to read there. Um, you know, when we first talk to our kids about uh, moving to Austria and asking them, you know, what do you guys think? You know, God's calling us to move to Austria. How do you guys feel about that? Moving to a new country, uh, to a new continent, even. My daughter, Piper, uh, her first response was, can we watch movies on the airplane? I said, sure. All right, I'm in. I'm like, okay, all right, no problem. Uh, in some ways, though, she takes after me, because this might be controversial, but I actually love flying. I know that's not true for many of you out there, but I do love the whole experience of flying. And one of my favorite parts about travel and flying is the wonderful people-watching you get to do in airports and on the plane. But that love of people watching goes right up until I have to sit next to someone for about 10 hours straight, right? Because you never know who you're going to sit next to. 
Of course, they're thinking the same thing, like, who's this Yahoo over here? But you never know who that person is going to be. And I like to think I'm a friendly conversationalist, but oftentimes I'm the one quickly reaching for the noise-canceling headphones. But those times that I do engage in conversation with those that I'm flying with, inevitably one of the first questions we ask each other is, so what do you do, right? What do you do? It's the kind of like the, the building block of conversation for those that you do not know. What do you do? And really what I'm asking is, what do you do to earn money? Right? My question is not, what do you do in your leisure time or hanging out with your family or how to pass the time, but how do you make your living here on earth? In some ways, it kind of makes sense that that's a, a basic question we always ask. Each of us will supposedly spend one third of our life working. Outside of sleep, it's what we do most. Now, I hate to tell you that what comes in third place is screen time. That's probably another sermon. Maybe it was actually last week's sermon on pleasure, but work represents this significant part of our lives. So the question of, well, what do you do? What do you do for work? Feels like a natural question to ask someone in order to make every other assumption about them. It's a telling question. We place a lot of significance on what we do, what we do to earn a living. When we ask someone to tell, tell me about yourself, one of our first responses is usually what our vocation is. And our conversation usually continues only so far as how interesting our job is or how much money we think the other person might make. Because really, our, our society is consumed with career and work so much so that we often elevate what someone does as the greatest indicator of who someone is. As if our job is what makes us most significant in this world, right? That's our first response. Tell me about yourself. Well, I'm such and such. This is what I do. And whether we answer that airplane seat question with pride or even caveats, you know, well, that's just my, what I'm doing now until my music career really takes off, right? You know, the, we, we, there's a deeper question that's hidden beneath it all that we hardly ever ask. But it, it's why. Why do you do what you do, right? Why are you a real estate agent? Why are you an accountant? Why are you a teacher? Why do you work at this company. For many of us, our jobs, our work, our career is where we look for some sort of significance in this world, where we look for some kind of fulfillment, meaning, and purpose in life, sometimes in very overt ways, but more often in, in subtle ways. But can it? Can our career really give us what we need in life? Do our jobs provide that sense of fulfillment, meaning, and purpose that we're really looking for? Is our work a place where we can find significance in this world? And that's what the, the preacher in today's text in Ecclesiastes explores. Our labor, our toil, it's our work. 
But we've got to remember, we must remember the role of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. We must understand the context of this book. It's to pull back the curtain and expose life for what it really is. He forces us to take a hard look, not only at life in general, but mostly he forces us to take a hard look at our hearts and where our hearts are aligned, what motivates us, what causes us sorrow or joy, how we search for meaning. Ecclesiastes is methodically picking apart the futile search for meaning in a life apart from God. It exposes these self-erected castles that we have as merely castles made of sand, things without substance. He does this from the perspective of someone living as if eternity is just a, a fairy tale, right? As if God doesn't really matter, as if that what we have here on earth, what we see and experience, as if that's all there is. This is the life under the sun, the phrase often repeated throughout the book. It's the search for the good life here on earth. And thus far, we've, we've seen his treatise on searching for the good life in wisdom. And we've seen him searching for the good life through pleasure. In chapter 1, the preacher explored wisdom as a means to find significance and understand all that life had to offer under the sun. And what did he find? Well, the more, the more we know, the more we are aware of the hurt and brokenness of this shattered world. He ended by saying, in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And in fact, the, the first part of our passage here today, verses 12 through 16, the preacher returns to wisdom, this time contrasting it with folly. Verse 12 says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man who comes after, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to them all. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. We won't spend much time here on this first part that focuses on wisdom because Trevor kind of walked us through this topic of wisdom two weeks ago. But the preacher realized, you know, it's probably better to be wise than foolish, but realistically, it's all a wash in the end, right? We all end up in the same place. We're all dead and gone afterwards. And if there's no life after death, then what does it really matter whether I live like a fool or like a wise man? The wise dies just like the fool. So where does that take him? Verse, seven, verse 17 says, so I hated life, right? Real optimistic here. But I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. It's insubstantial. Death is the, the great equalizer in a life under the sun mentality. It renders all things inconsequential. It's grasping after the wind, chasing the wind. You can kind of picture that. Imagine a bunch of kids out on the field trying to catch the wind, right? It's a, it's a lot of activity, but no result. There's no substance to it. Wisdom provided no true meaning in life for the preacher. Neither did folly. So last week we looked and the preacher turned to, well, maybe if I live a life of pleasure, 
Wisdom left him hating life, depressed. So he said, well, maybe, you know, maybe a life of pleasure. So what does he do? He goes out on a bender, doesn't hold anything back from himself, tries to enjoy life. And after drowning himself in pleasure, he found that this too was an empty pursuit. All was vanity and grasping after the wind. Hevel, that Hebrew word, vanity, insubstantial, meaningless, a vapor. Ecclesiastes is a search for meaning outside of eternity. And time and time again, the preacher finds that it's all vain. It's all vanity. It's a grasping after the wind. It's meaningless smoke. It seems like it's there, but it's got no substance. It, doesn't, it seems like wisdom would bring great, great understanding for the meaning of life, but it doesn't. And it, it seems like a life of pleasure would satiate our deepest needs because, you know, it feels good in the moment, but it ends up empty, ends up a vapor. The question that Ecclesiastes asks us is, what is the meaning of life then? How do I experience the good life? If it's not these things, then what is it? Is there even meaning to life? That's the big question of humanity. It's what separates us from the animals, among other things, right? We want to know the answer to the big questions of life. Dogs don't sit around asking themselves existential questions and questioning their own mortality, right? They just chew things and wag their tail. But us, we ask, we inquire, we search. What am I here for? Why do I exist? Is this all there is to life? Who am I? And so we go around trying out what the world has, hoping something can provide some substance, some meaning for our deepest desires. Psychologist Abraham Maslow in the 1900s stated that human motivation is based on a hierarchy of needs. He came up with this hierarchy where at the, at the bottom level, the base of it all are those physiological needs. That'd be like food and shelter, right? Our basic human needs that we all need. And you work your way up, and up at the top, at the very top of all that, is our, is our need for self-actualization, or transcendence, as he calls it. It's the, our need for the search for meaning in life. Now, Maslow was not a Christian as far as I know, but he did touch on a truth we see in Scripture. We each, each of us, has an imprint of eternity on us. Our search for meaning points to a transcendent God who made us, who created us to have meaning and purpose in life, to be fully human. We were made for a reason, not some cosmic accident. There is more to life than what we experience here on earth. The Bible tells us that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But there's a problem. The problem is, is that we naturally look for the answer to those big questions apart from God. Right? We either do this overtly or in subtle ways. We're really good at taking something that was never meant to provide fulfillment and acting as if it could somehow fulfill us. 
taking the temporal things here on earth, the things that are under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, and acting as if they can bring the answer to those big questions in life. We live as if we can find meaning and significance and fulfillment apart from God. Who made us? But we can't. We can't. And what happens when we can't? We get angry with God as if it's somehow his fault, but it's us looking for those things and and stuff that was never meant to satisfy us. But don't think that the preacher here is talking to an atheist. His audience in mind are probably those who believe God exists in some form, but they live their lives as if he's not important. The preacher's audience is those that believe in God, but live their lives as if he doesn't matter. Here's the kicker. So much of the time, that's us, right? So much of the time, that's us. We can be really good at externally claiming God is our Lord and Savior, while functionally, we've put something else on the throne of our lives. Our decisions are guided by something else. We look to something else for significance, We care more about what other people think about us than doing God's will. Instead of asking God, what is your will for my life? We might say that in a prayer, but really other things are pushing us and directing us. And so much of the time in our culture, that thing that directs and guides us has been our work, our career, what we do. We place it above God in our lives. And so when we start a conversation with somebody it's so what do you do for work right the preacher found that more knowledge and partying couldn't bring fulfillment so now in verse 18 he turns to expose work as our as our false savior if i only had more career success i'd be fulfilled if i only could get this job it would all work out for me look at verse 18 I'm reading here from the ESV. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, that he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. The preacher exposes our work and our toil as all vanity. And it may be that what you do has become your why right? The reason you get up in the morning, and if that, if that was somehow taken away, it would spiral you down into an existential crisis, right? If that somehow was removed. If I fail as a, as a pastor, who am I? Asking those hard questions. You know, as a, a dad, um, I've seen the movie Encanto a few dozen times, honestly. It's got a very catchy soundtrack, all right? Uh, and if you don't know the film, um, film is just a fancy word for movie. Um, if you don't know the movie, uh, it's about a family with all these different gifts, right? Magical powers. Uh, and it's easy to realize that for many of them, their gift or their power has become their identity. What they can do has become who they are. And if they ever lost it, their lives would be shattered. There's one character in the movie who's inhumanly strong. She has the gift of strength. She's known as the strong one, even emotionally, holding the family together, together, never cracking under pressure. But we see how much her ability 
has become her identity in the movie. You can see the grins of those who know the film. She has this song, which I will not sing, but I will read. Um, she, she, <laughs> she sings this line from this song. Under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. Who am I if I can't carry it all? Oh, Disney. Right? Disney exposing our own insecurities. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe that's, maybe it's not what you do where you find significance, but maybe it's what you get out of it. Right? You live or die based on how competent others think you are or perceive you are. Your reason for getting up in the morning is that you can, so you can show the world that you have a right to exist here on earth. Your life has somehow intrinsic value. And so career success becomes your guiding compass in life. But if you don't get the promotion or land the contract or meet your Q3 goals, right, who are you? You're devastated. You can't live with people thinking yet you're somehow a failure in this part of your life. After all, then what's your value if you can't do that job, if you can't earn that much money? Either way, we, we all ha have this desire to have significance in life, contribute to something of value, be somebody of value. There's a little bit of foreshadowing here because some of, some of that is seeded in us by God, God-given desire. We're going to talk about that later. But the reality is, is we have no guarantee that anything we do or make will make an impact or persist beyond us. This is what the preacher calls hevel, right? It's, it's vanity. It's, it's a vapor. What we're seeing is there's, there's often two different ways in which we can approach the concept of work, what we do. Our motivation is either based on an external or an internal reward. That internal reward, it's just, the, it's just the satisfaction of a job well done. You don't care how much money you make. You just like doing your job well. Or an external reward. That's the outer compensation we get from what we do. It's our legacy, our paycheck, how we'll be remembered in the office. And sometimes you can catch the nuance between the two and how we talk about it with our, the use of our language. If we ascribe more importance to what we do as an internal reward, we might call it a career, right? But if we're in it more for the paycheck, well, it's just, it's just work, right? And, you, you know, it's like I'm pursuing a career in finance. Well, I got a job at the bank, but it pays really good. But, of course, it's not always black and white. It's a spectrum of those things in our lives between the two. And this is what, and what we find here is in Ecclesiastes 2, the preacher really addresses both of those things. For those who look to work as a means of external rewards, outer success and recognition, the preacher goes there and has this observation. In verse 20, he says, So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. This is the preacher telling us you can't take it with you, right? No matter what you make or the accolades you receive in your career, all your work is going to be left behind when you die. And if you leave it to those who never earned it, that's, that's vanity, Death, the great equalizer, makes it all end up insubstantial in the end. And whether it's a financial uh, nest egg that you've built your 
you know, you spent your whole life going towards or a product or a project you've worked on, when you're dead, it stays behind. You go to the grave, it stays behind. It doesn't go with you. To be enjoyed by someone else who didn't even put a lick of work into it, right? But what's even worse, the preacher says that the person you end up leaving it to, they could be a complete idiot, right? You build it all up only to leave it to some deadbeat who didn't even work for it. This is vanity, the preacher saying. Not only vanity, he's saying it's a great evil. In verse 21, you amass the wealth, but leave it to those who did not work for it. That is frustrating. Something in us kind of registers with that injustice. They didn't work for it. Why should they get it? You know, one of my um, childhood heroes, uh, Jackie Chan, said in an interview that he has no plans to leave his, you know, millions of dollars to his uh, son. He said, if he's capable, he can make his own money. And if he's not, then he'll just be wasting mine. Right? But it's not just him. Other wealthy people have been on the record having the same kind of attitude. Rock legend Gene Simmons of the band Kiss told uh, his kids that they will never be rich off my money because every year they should be forced to get out of bed and go out and work, right? It's like, I'm not leaving anything to them, right? This is celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay who makes his kids fly economy while he's up in first class because they're not the ones with the TV shows, right? You don't leave it to them. We understand the cruel irony of earning something only to leave it to those who didn't work for it. It's hevel. In fact, Solomon, who's the supposed preacher in Ecclesiastes, knew this all too well. He was one of the richest kings in Israel, left behind financial riches and national prestige, only to have his fool of a son, Rehoboam, squander it all when he became king. It was under his son that the kingdom split. And they lost that national prestige during his time. Solomon knew this well. Death comes to us all. And if you're living life as if God is unimportant, then all your toil and work to acquire and get ends up being a fruitless labor. It all vanishes like smoke. Everything we work for that we thought was so important ends up lost to us. And we may strive to build a legacy, a remembrance, only to leave it behind. Only to leave it behind. Because time renders it all the same. He's striving after the wind. It's a lot of work, but no real reward. It'll all be forgotten in the end. There's a famous poem called Ozymandias. I'm sure many of you know it by Percy Shelley. And it was written in the early 1800s as part of a competition between two poets after they had read about an ancient Egyptian statue that had been found that had an inscription on it. And the inscription on the statue read, King of Kings, Ozymandias am I. If any want to know how great I am and where I lie, let him outdo me in my work. Now, of course, the irony is, is that statue had fallen over right, broken apart, was weathered by centuries of sand. Listen to how Shelley's poem captures the irony of it. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, 
a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that it sculptor well those passions red which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear my name is ozymandias king of kings look on my works ye mighty and despair nothing beside remains round that decay of that colossal wreck boundless and bare the lone and level sands stretch far away it's hevel it's vanity like many poems you kind of want to read it twice but really the author here is talking about the same thing that the preacher is talking about, right? It's, we might think we're doing this great and mighty work to acquire, to get, as if it's some sort of significance in this world, but as if it has some import. But with, apart from God, without God in the picture, what's it all really for? It just ends up being crumbled into more sand. When we place so much importance on what we do or the value of our paychecks or recognition or work, it all becomes a search for salvation, a justification for living, a search for substance in life, trying to prove our existence or justify our existence. And work or career or jobs can never fulfill that role. You might be in another camp, though. You don't really care about how much you make or the external recognition you get in the uh, from your job and although that's nice but you're in it for that inner satisfaction of a job well done the preacher addresses that too verse 22 says what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest this also is vanity preacher says all you ever get is vexation and burdensome it's all pain and grief if there's no meaning to it stress and anxiety is what we get the feeling of a job well done does not ultimately take away that the fact that work will still be burdensome in our life and verse 22 is kind of like the the preacher's main point in this passage on his observations on work it's the rhetorical question that he's putting to his listeners what has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Right? His rhetorical question to us. He's, again, he's trying to pull back the curtain of our life, exposing that which we often, we often place our worth in as merely a castle in the sand. He throws the question at us. What do you really get out of it? You know, one of the great phenomena that came out of the COVID pandemic was something that uh, something coined the Great Resignation. I'm sure you've read about it, where massive amounts of people were quitting their jobs in search of something better. They were not willing to continue in a career where they either weren't being paid as much as they thought they should be paid or weren't being afforded the lifestyle they wanted or wanted to find a work with more meaning. And really, they all had this expectation that work, their jobs, should somehow be more, right? More in life. And for many people, it was a good thing, you know, a good shift in their life, and maybe for, that's your story too, but I think it tells us something about our relationship with work, that it should give us meaning, it should give us satisfaction, or at least enough money that we can enjoy ourselves. And ironically, many regretted changing their careers or their jobs at that time, and even tried to go back to their previous employers. Why? 
Well, they were realizing the same thing that the preacher is pointing out here. A search for ultimate significance and meaning in what we do ends up being an empty pursuit. The preacher says it's all burdensome. When we think that there's, this is all there is to life, what's the point, he says. And even those who follow their passions, you know, you think about the entrepreneurs who are starting their own companies, the founders. Research has shown that founders work 60 to 100 hours per week. Oh, man, that's a lot. That reminds me of verse 23 that says, even in the night, his heart does not rest. You're doing something you enjoy, but your whole life is consumed by it. And especially if it, what if it fails, right? In the end, it's all left to someone else and your existence is over. Whether we work for an inner or outer reward, we all end up dead and the grave has no concern for what you accomplished or even a job well done. Death makes it all meaningless because death ends our existence in a godless worldview. Ecclesiastes dismantles any notion that we can find real meaning, real substance, real significance in our work. So where does that leave us? Ecclesiastes asks us a question that the rest of the Bible answers. And the preacher gives us a little hint of it at the end of chapter 2. Really, that satisfaction from our work has to be a gift from God. Us striving for meaning from what we do will never work. It all must be a gift from God. It has to be something God gives us. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting, only to give it to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. This is really an incomplete thought here. It's only best understood when we view it from the whole of Scripture. The preacher is alluding to satisfaction and meaning and purpose only by only coming from one place. It's not what we do. It's from God. With a finite view, well, we might as well make the best of it and hope to enjoy it because it, who knows whether we get to or not. But the rest of the Bible fills in what the preacher alludes to here speaks to a greater purpose. It answers that rhetorical question. And we don't gain fulfillment, complete fulfillment from our work. It tells us that the gospel changes everything. A gospel view brings everything into focus. We can't earn fulfillment. It can only be given to us by God. Right? He's the one that gives us the right to be called children of God, John 1. Gives us that identity of who we are, that question of who am I. God gives us that. It's not an earned inheritance or title. Right, We think back to our series in Galatians, but it's one given to those who believe. And this passage touches on ever so slightly that fact. That we all have this deep down an imprint of a creator God. That we were made in his image to do work. Part of that is to work. In fact, we have a, a kid's book at the resource table in the back that talks about that very thing, that we have the, we are created in God's image to work. You think back all the way to Genesis 2, where it says, the Lord took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work it, right? And that's before the fall, right? Man had a job to do. Yet the twisting of this 
to the point where we make it our identity is called idolatry. Work is a part of who we are, but it must be viewed through the lens of the gospel. Think of 1 Corinthians 10 that says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever we do no longer is about a search for significance because God is the one who has given, uh, uh, given us that through Christ Jesus. Our skills, our work become a way to reflect his goodness in our life because we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. You know, you, you might not be in your job for the money or the satisfaction. Maybe it's the complete opposite. Work is just completely meaningless to you, right? It's, you dread going to work. You, whether good or bad, you can't find any meaning in it. The gospel changes that too. Work through a gospel lens has purpose then has purpose as a means to display God's grace and goodness in your life. And what this does, what the gospel does, is it redefines success for our lives, right? It redefines, because we all have an idea of what success looks like from a life under the sun perspective, right? It's that long resume, right? Those job titles, the size of that 401k, that's what success looks like. But what does success look like when we think beyond the sun, from a gospel narrative, from a perspective that, yes, God is real and I believe in eternity? Then what does success look like in your life? That's the fun question, right? If we come before God and commit our whole lives to him, what might he do in you and through you? What might he do? If you said yes to Jesus, what would that look like in your life? Success then becomes radically doing the will of God in your life. It's a reorienting everything around God. And yes, that's going to touch on your career and your job, but they become more fuel for God's glory in your life. Uh, another childhood hero of mine, a little more substantial than uh, Jackie Chan, uh, Jim Elliott. He was a missionary in South America who was martyred. And I remember reading his journals decades ago. Uh, and there's a, a passage that he has in one of his journals that has stuck with me ever since. And it's become my prayer. He wrote this. He said, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one. Whoa. What, what radical obedience to God's will in his life. I don't believe obeying God's will leads us all to martyrdom like it did for Jim Elliott, but reading about his life, you can tell that that man had no regrets in saying yes to Jesus. No regrets. Saying yes to Jesus has been the, been the best thing that's ever happened in my life. It's led me and my family to incredible places of God's grace and love. Years ago, uh, in 2018, my family and I had moved down from Santa Barbara. I was working at a church there, um, 
I was at that church for about seven years, and we just felt like God was turning a new chapter in our lives, and we weren't quite sure what that looked like yet. So we moved down here to be uh, move in with family here in San Diego, um, and we're just praying, and I felt like, okay, God's going to move in our life. There's something coming. There's something coming. Um, and we thought it was soon, so we're living with family. turned out to be like 18 months later, so God bless our family. Um, but there was, at one point in that, in that journey there, um, we just felt like, man, God's got put this holy discomfort in our heart to kind of what we talked about earlier. Like, we want to be lights in a dark place. We have a desire to move to a place where there's not a lot of Christians, not a lot of churches. And so we were looking, I was looking for jobs uh, globally in places like that. And Europe had always been on our hearts, um, even before we got married. Like we just saw Europe as this place, spiritually dark landscape there. Um, and, and so I had found a job um, in Germany, of all places, and it looked great. I qualified for the position. I even had the, um, you know, like an internal reference from somebody in the higher ups. It was all looking good. And I thought, yes, this is how God is, is this is how his will is working out in my life. And um, I can remember, you know, I got through the first round of interviews or whatever, and then getting the form email, like, thank you for applying. We you know, appreciated that, but we're going with somebody else. I just remember being so devastated by that, you know, and I, I used to think like, oh, job, it doesn't matter. Work's not that, you know, important. And that's what I would tell myself. But getting that email, it, like we said in Ecclesiastes, it really pulled back the curtain of my heart and exposed areas of my life where I thought, you know what? No, I, I am good enough to do that. How can they not see that I could do that and accomplish that? And it was really devastating and it was hard, but it was God's grace on my life and showing me areas that where he wasn't on the throne of my life, right? And of course, it has a happy ending because shortly thereafter, God opened up opportunities for my family and I to move to Indonesia. Now, it wasn't even on our radar. So we were in, moved to Indonesia for two years, and it was an amazing time for my, my family and I um, where God did a lot of work in that time in my life. But saying yes to Jesus has always been like that, right? This, this pulling back of the curtain, exposing areas of my life where I've put other things on the throne. But following Jesus has always been the best thing. And it's brought me here to be part of this church family. And now it's God calling us to another adventure in Austria and all along the way, God is continually showing me the, the depths of idolatry in my heart that he might reign supreme in my life. You know, a lot of people have said, like, wow, I can't believe you're picking up and moving uh, like that with your family. And, you know, in some ways, I, I, I understand what they're saying. But uh, there's really nothing impressive about, about what we, we're doing. It's... It's who we're following that has any significance in my life. Saying yes to Jesus looks different for all of us, right? But following him means radical obedience to his will for our life. It's an invitation for us to be fully human, to embrace, to embrace the wonder of life under the sun because we know that there is a God beyond the sun who knows us and calls us his own. 
Like I said, it could look, could look like a bunch of different stuff. It could mean moving to a different country. But who better to lead you, who better to lead you than the one who has known you even before you were born, right? It's that prayer of Jim Elliot: Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. God bless you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, Father, that you care for us and love us so much to expose our hearts, to expose our false desires, to expose the false saviors we put our trust in. God, and if um, for any of us here that's that's been career or work, Lord, I just thank you that you love us enough to pull us from that place closer to you, God, and that you alone provide fulfillment and satisfaction, God. In you, we have life and life abundant. So, Lord, would you consume our life, God, for it is yours. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.